Good morning, everyone. My name is Chase Callahan. I'll be doing our scripture reading for today. Today we'll be in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and verses 57 through 62. Starting with verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the bed, the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that our eyes might be opened to see the Lord Jesus, our ears might be opened to hear his call, that as he calls people to come, follow after him, may we hear his call upon our hearts and lives today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1783, a man named Charles Simeon became the pastor of Trinity Church, Cambridge, in Cambridgeshire, England. Charles Simeon was a convictional Anglican, but he was also an evangelical Anglican. He was an evangelical pastor at a time and in a place where it was not popular to to earnestly believe and preach the gospel. Simeon ministered in the heart of a prestigious university town. His parish included many of the colleges that made up the University of Cambridge. He pastored an important Anglican church and an important center of education at a time when the Church of England was largely moving back toward Rome and rituals, and away from the clear and earnest preaching of the good news of of Christ to sinners. Charles Simeon became the pastor of Trinity Church in 1783, and he would hold that ministry continuously for the next 54 years. 54 years pastoring one church despite long seasons of intense opposition. For example, For the first 12 years of his ministry, everyone who heard him preach had to listen to him while standing up because the regular church members had doors on the ends of their pews and they would lock those doors and not allow anyone to sit as he was preaching. Uh, There were often disruptions inside Trinity Church during the service and outside of the church Simeon would often be accosted in the streets and publicly insulted, going back and forth in the city of Cambridge. I wonder, how would you fare your first 12 years on a job having a group of folks intent on running you out of town? Would you be tempted to look for a more hospitable, appreciative place of employment? Probably. But Charles Simeon didn't. He gave his entire working life to Trinity Church, Cambridge, and he lived to see many university students come to faith, and some even 
be sent out as the first pioneer missionaries to places like India and Persia. Toward the end of his life, when Charles Simeon was asked by a friend how he had overcome all the opposition against him and outlasted all his opponents, Simeon responded this way. He said, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. That's a powerful image and picture. One that I often return to, especially having lived in England where there are hedges everywhere along the road. Since Christ, our holy head, has already emerged out of the other side of this prickly hedge. Since he has come out the other side of his suffering, we, his body, can bear the pricking of our heels as we follow after him in his victory. Simeon calls us to rejoice in this. The head has already gone through the hedge. And since the head is through, the rest of the body can go through as well, even if it means we endure a few scratches along the way. That's a very helpful image and a much-needed word for our day because the air we often breathe is full of flakiness and fragility today. We get hurt easily, don't we? We get our feelings hurt easily. Many of us get our faith rattled easily. We are often easily disheartened in the face of criticism and opposition. We are easily discouraged by the cultural winds blowing against us. We are often easily distracted by all that glitters, all that promises us quick and easy access to pleasure or promotion or power. We far too easily cave on our commitments, be they ones of work, church, or marriage. We easily cave on our commitments when things get tough or when we get a better offer or worse, when we just get bored. Many inside the church and outside the church have noted the flakiness and emotional fragility of our times. There's no shortage of social commentary out there, ink spilled, if you care to look. And sadly, there's also no shortage of spillover of it into the modern American church. But while we can't govern the overall tenor of our times, we can control how we will respond to the tenor of our times. We can control how we will stand in contrast to our times. We can determine how we will respond. When others turn aside, when others flake out, will we set our face like flint and determine not to mind a little suffering for Christ's sake? After all, We've got the model. We've got the motivation that others do not. We follow a Savior who models for us a no-turning-back determination in his life. We follow a Savior who motivates us toward 
a no-turning-back way of life. Let's focus on him, church. Let's set our affections completely on him, on a Savior who set his face toward Jerusalem. During these weeks that lead up uh, to Easter, these, these weeks we call Lent, let's determine to walk this dark road with him all the way to Good Friday and beyond, to the swift sunrise of Easter Sunday. There were many defining moments in this journey for Jesus, and we'll see many of them in this sermon series. But the first one we'll look at today gives us the theme that will carry through all the rest. We see it in verse 51. Look with me at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. The scripture says this, when the days were approaching for his ascension, his taking up, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Literally, he set his face to Jerusalem. If you're taking notes, here's our first of our four headings this morning. There's no turning back for Jesus. No turning back for Jesus. He sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He's determined to go. Jesus sets his face like flint toward Jerusalem, knowing precisely what all awaits him there. Only seven verses earlier, Jesus told his disciples this. You look back at verse 44. He says, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knew that betrayal and capture awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew that wrongful arrest and a sham trial awaited him at the road's end. He knew that torture and shame and public execution awaited him at this journey's conclusion. And more than all of that, he knew that the bitter cup of God's wrath awaited him atop a hill called Calvary. He knew all the pain, all the grief, all the suffering that awaited him, and yet he set his face toward Jerusalem with steely determination. Jesus knew fully what torment of soul awaited him on this road, and he tells us so. On the heels of this triumph, he enters into Jerusalem triumphantly, the crowd shouting, Hosanna. John 12 records this, that in, after that moment, Jesus prays and says to the Father, Now is my soul greatly troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus knows with every step toward Jerusalem that he came into the world for this hour. This hour being the big gospel events of his death and resurrection. The big events that alter the course of history. Whether you believe the gospel or not today, it is hard to ignore the claim that this hour is the one that changed the course of history. It's hard to deny that. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem started a journey for the world in a new direction. Even non-Christian historians today find themselves forced to recognize this. They're forced to recognize that Jesus was a historical person because you have to locate the genius somewhere of his teaching. He was a historical person and that Jesus really seemed to know what awaited him 
as he set his face to return to Jerusalem. He knew his death lay at the end of that journey and sought to prepare his disciples in advance for it. He prepared them by incorporating the whole pageantry of his death into their last meal together. Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Take and drink. This is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem knowing exactly what it would cost him. Knowing that this was the hour for which he had come into the world. This was his mission. This was how humanity finds salvation. It can only come through the atoning sacrifice that he must make at the end of this road. There's no shortcuts. Jesus realizes there's no shortcuts. There's no other paths to redemption. There must be no turning back from this mission. If justice is to be fully satisfied and the guilty fully forgiven, Jesus cannot turn back from this road. His substitutionary sacrifice is the only way. The only innocent one must stand in the place and absorb all our just punishments. The only way back to God is for Jesus to become sin for us so that we might become righteous in him. The great exchange of the gospel is the only way. I say this is the only way because God didn't offer another one. In the garden, remember this, in the garden, in the deepest distress imaginable, Jesus asks, he prays, is there another way? If there is another way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. I think that moment is recorded for us so that we might know that there wasn't another way. Or at least that this is the best way. The cross is the best display of God's sacrificial love. One that God himself imagined. Sin's debt is more fully paid in Jesus' sacrifice than if all of humanity had tasted divine justice for all of eternity. Think about that. Jesus, as an infinite person, can drain a cup at the cross that all of humanity together could never finish. Eternity is not long enough for finite creatures to pay an infinite debt. You have offended someone you had an infinite obligation to obey. The only way you can pay that debt is over an infinite amount of time. But Jesus, as the God-man, he can pay it. As man, he can stand in our place. As God, he can fully take our punishment in a finite period of time. So, the road that leads to Jerusalem and to the cross is the absolute best way. Both to satisfy divine justice and to display the seriousness of sin. In setting his face toward Jerusalem, Jesus sets his face toward our best and only hope of salvation. Toward the only way God's wayward children can be brought home again. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, seeing all the pain, all the shame, all the punishment. But he also looks past those things, doesn't he? What does the scripture say? Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, 
he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus looked beyond sin's punishment, and he saw salvation's reward. He looks beyond the cross, and he saw his kingdom. A kingdom filled with blood-bought people from every tribe and tongue and nation. For the joy set before him, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And for our sake, there could be no turning back. Let's see what else Jesus endures on this road toward the cross. Look at verses 57 and 58. Verse 57 says, And they were going along the road. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here we see our second heading. First, no turning back for Jesus. Secondly, no resting place for Jesus. No resting place for Jesus. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When I was a kid, there was a Saturday morning cartoon called Pro Stars, featuring Bo Jackson. You may remember that, circa 1991. Uh, Bo Jackson's catchphrase on the show was, Bo knows. Bo knows sports. Bo knows baseball. Bo knows everything, I think he said at one point. I don't remember being shocked by any of those Bo no claims as a kid. But I think I would have been shocked by this. I would have been shocked by this claim. Jesus knows homelessness. Isn't that shocking? Jesus knows homelessness. Jesus knows what it's like sleeping rough in the fields, under trees, with rocks for pillows. It's likely the storm on the Sea of Galilee isn't the only storm Jesus has slept through outside and exposed to the elements. The prophet Isaiah prophesied that this coming Messiah, saying there'd be nothing about him, nothing about his appearance that would attract us to him. One of the reasons for that could have been that God's Messiah often looked like a homeless man. Jesus the good shepherd probably often looked like and smelled like the average shepherd sleeping in the fields with his flocks. And let's not forget that this is all by God's design. God determined that the radiance of his glory would be born into a stable. That his son's cradle would be an animal's dirty feeding trough. God determined that his son would leave the highways of heaven to walk the dusty roads of earth and to have no resting place for his head. By God's intentional design, Jesus knows poverty. Creation's king knows what it means to be poor. He knows poverty better than anyone here. Let that sink in. Jesus wasn't a homeowner. He had nowhere to lay his head. But how poetic is the homelessness of God? God becomes homeless so that 
we might come home. God's Savior has nowhere to rest his head so that we might find our rest in him. God's king becomes poor so that we, the spiritually impoverished, might become rich forevermore. Jesus goes without many comforts so that we might not despair if following him means we lose our comforts. We lose our homes, we lose our families, our jobs, our reputations. Thankfully, those losses feel unlikely for us today. But there was a time when all those things were very likely for the early Christians. Such losses are still likely for people in many parts of the world today. To follow Christ might mean losing the roof over your head. To follow Christ, for some people, does mean your family will disown you. Your spouse will divorce you. Your boss will fire you. Your landlord will evict you. Jesus knows no resting place for his head, and that should give courage to all who come after him. The head has already gone through the hedge of homelessness and poverty. We can follow after him in these things if necessary, and we will not be the loser for it. We will be the better because there is not one sacrifice, not one scratch that such a Savior will not abundantly repay. The same one who sees and rewards our every secret prayer also sees and rewards our every discomfort, disgrace, and insect bite patiently endured in following him. As Jesus walks this road to Jerusalem, he initiates another interaction, which leads us to our third heading. There's no delaying for us. No delaying for us. We see this in verses 59 and 60. As he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Jesus calls a man to follow him. You follow me. He calls a man to follow him. And in response, the man asks for a delay. Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. This request for a delay probably isn't the man saying, my father just died. Please permit me to go attend the funeral, Lord. The request is more likely, my father's still alive. Please, Lord, permit me to wait until he dies to leave everything and follow you. And on the surface, neither request seems unreasonable. Whether it's a few days delay or a few years delay. It's a delay for the sake of family obligations. It seems totally reasonable. But Jesus knows something that the man doesn't. Jesus knows the timeline. Jesus knows this road he is walking leads to Jerusalem and to his death. The man thinks he has all the time in the world to find and follow Jesus, but he doesn't. 
It might be the case that the man thinks, if I just wait until my disapproving father kicks the bucket, then I'll be out from under his thumb doing what I want, and I can follow Jesus if I want to. The man may think to himself, I'll follow Christ when circumstances are better. The man might think that, but there is no delaying this offer. Jesus personally invites this man to follow him as he is walking toward the greatest event in history. This, what Jesus gives, this is a better offer than if Matt Smith, my favorite doctor from Doctor Who, if Matt Smith had appeared suddenly in his blue police call box time machine called the TARDIS and offered to take this man anywhere in time and space he wanted to go. You can go on any adventure, see anything, witness anything in history. But then the doctor notices Jesus there. And here's the call, follow me. And the doctor says, look mate, the biggest event in all of time and space is about to take place a reasonable short walk from here. And the Lord of time himself is personally inviting you to follow him there. Do you really have too much on at the moment? Because that's the better offer. That's better than my offer. That's the best offer you will ever get. While there is no fictional doctor presenting, uh, saying, present saying such things, there is a historical Jesus present. The great physician is really there, calling the man to follow him. Jesus knows that there is no delaying this journey. Jesus rightly points out that there is no human relationship that is so important as to make it worth delaying a relationship with God. Let the dead bury their own dead. Let the spiritually dead bury their own physical dead. What horizontal relationship with others is worth delaying your vertical relationship with God? There aren't any. No human relationship is worth delaying a heavenly one. Recently, I've been having a bit of trouble sleeping, mostly just switching off my mind, thinking about things related to church, the hard things people are going through. So I've returned to an old habit of keeping my Kindle paper white on my bedside table and just reading myself back to sleep. And the book I'm reading through slowly, just like page by page, a couple pages at a time, is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And I was struck how what Jesus says here reminds me so much of an early scene in Pilgrim's Progress. The main character, whose name is Christian, has a great burden of sin on his back. And at the beginning of the book, he and his family live in the city of destruction. But Christian is told there is a way of escape. There is a narrow gate through which he may enter and find freedom from his burden. But instead of his family accompanying him on this journey to freedom, they all beg and implore him to stay in the city of destruction. But as he leaves, his family, his neighbors, they all call out to him, some mocking, some threatening. Finally, in the face of all these pleas and mocks and threats, Christian puts his fingers in his ears and runs, crying, 
life, life, eternal life. And he refuses to look back anymore at those trying to dissuade him. Because no human relationship in this life is so important that you should miss out on eternal life. And no human event is so important as to keep you from following Jesus immediately. No funeral, no wedding, no graduation, no unfulfilled ambition, no promise of pleasure is worth delaying the call to follow Jesus. Jesus knew where the road led, and he knew that he would not pass this way again. This was the man's one opportunity to leave the world behind for heaven's sake. The man thought he had all the time in the world, but the world itself was running out of time with Jesus. The man didn't know how much time he had, but Jesus did. You don't know how much time you have, but Jesus does. You may not have another year, another week, another day left in this world. You can't say, after I tend to this matter, or after I sow my wild oats, or once my kids start needing some kind of moral education, then I'll come to Jesus. Then I'll get serious about being part of his church. You don't know what time you have. You can't say, on my deathbed, I'll respond and repent and everything will be okay. You don't know if on your deathbed you'll be able to respond at all, let alone repent. There's no guarantee that repentance will be there in some future moment waiting for you. That's why today is always called the day of salvation. Today. Right now is always the perfect time to repent. Right now is the only time you ever have to repent and shift your allegiance to Jesus. It's foolishness to delay and join in with the dead, burying their own dead. You've been given a mission. You've been extended a call. If you hear his voice, if you hear the king's call, now is the time to respond. Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Don't delay for any human relationship or circumstance or unfulfilled ambition. Plug your ears like Christian and run to Jesus, calling out life, life, eternal life. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but embrace Christ's call to come and follow him. If we hear and embrace that call, it will also mean this. There's no looking back for us. That's our fourth and final heading. No looking back for us. We see that in verses 61 and 62. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Albert Barnes puts it this way. He said, to put one's hand to the plow is a proverbial expression to signify undertaking any business. In order that a plowman may accomplish his work, it is necessary to look onward, to look forward, 
to be intent on his employment, not to be looking back with regret that he undertook it. So it is in religion. He that enters on it must do it with his whole heart. He that comes still loving the world, still looking with regret on its pleasures, its wealth, and its honors, has not wholly forsaken them as his portion. He cannot be a Christian and is not fit for God's kingdom. In summary, Jesus is either everything or he is nothing. You can't declare yourself for him and then be looking from side to side for better offers. If that's your posture, you're going to fall to a distraction somewhere or another. You're going to go after what glitters over there. You're going to turn aside to what offers you pleasure over here. You're going to be spiritually flaky. Jesus warns us that this would be the case for many. He said that many people would have a seemingly positive response to the word of the kingdom, but they don't last. They're only temporary. When the worries of the world or the deceitfulness of riches or the desire for other things enter in, they, like weeds or thorns, choke out the word. And there's no lasting fruit for Jesus. Jesus told us it would be like this. And you will likely see this happen. Live long enough, you will see this happen. And it will likely grieve you greatly when you do. When you see people who seem to take their hand off of Jesus' plow and reach out for sensual pleasures or online likes and approval and popularity or worldly wealth and possessions. But it need not be that way with you. You need not look back. Each spiritual shipwreck you encounter ought to be like another push to sail your soul ship straight and true. To keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't be like Peter looking at the chaotic waves all around him and taking his eyes off the beauty of the Lord. Don't look back to Sodom like Lot's wife and become like a pillar of salt, which stands as a warning for others. You today hear Jesus' voice and call. Put your hand to the plow and never look back. Who are those worthy of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is for those who simply look at Jesus, who fix their eyes on him, and give their, don't give their hearts to anything less lovely. Who are able to endure all the crosses and despise all the shame for the joy they see set before them in Christ. Because they see that Christ, our holy head, has surmounted all of his suffering, and they now consider it an honor to follow after him. Is that you this morning? Is that your heart? It can be. 
Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. You say you can't do much, but you can do that. You can look, can't you? All you have to do is look. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes upon him and see him setting his face toward the cross for you. Look at Jesus and follow him through the hedge. Like Charles Simeon, not minding a little suffering for Christ's sake. Together, Alberta Baptist Church, let's follow Jesus through each and every hedge. Never turning back. Father, may you work this in our collective hearts together today that we would be a people who fix our eyes upon Jesus. No turning back, no turning back for us. Lord, I pray that there are, I believe, hearts here who are hearing this gospel and and eyes being opened for the first time. May each and every one of us Say in our heart of hearts, I must have this Savior. I must know this King, the one who became poor that I might become rich, the one who was homeless that I might come home. May our hearts embrace him and swear allegiance to him. May we rejoice in the mission he has given us of loving him and making known how lovely he is. Lord, I pray that if there's a heart here this morning that has that walked in not knowing, not loving, not embracing that king, would walk out full of joy, knowing that Jesus stands for them. He's walked this road for them. He has set his face toward Jerusalem for them. May every heart here be a believing heart, embracing the Lord Jesus. I ask this for his glory and in his name. Amen.